Ta-da! What are you doing, you moron? The following presentation is intended only for immature audiences. I bid you welcome. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And God said, let there be F-bombs. And they were good. And they multiplied. Right here in this podcast. F, 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 F. Kaboom! Bless me, fatter. For I have sinned. It's been about two months since my last episode. You realize some people aren't going to be happy with this? Yeah, well, uh, apologies to my two tree listeners. This material is awfully busy. Even though I've already done the heavy lifting, you know, research and writing. When it comes to editing, oh, that just takes as long as it takes. Go to a therapist. You sure do have your problems. Hi there, and welcome back to the Hansel and Gretel Code. This here is episode 30. Yes, this is amazing. I am totally impressed by everything that's happening here. I'm listening, but I don't like it. In our last episode, we played one last game of Simon Says and learned about a guy named Saint, uh, or I mean, Mr. Cyprian, whose autobiographical story marked him as an ancestor of QAnon. No way. Eh, come to think of it, considering his theurgical exploits were so wild and crazy, I'm just thinking. He may have pulled off one of the greatest alchemical and theurgical feats of all time. What's that? Well, you see, gold wasn't the only thing alchemists were after. There was another fabled item on the wish list of most wannabe theurgists and alchemists. What's that? Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Immortality. Holy shit! And so maybe the anonymous Q is Cyprian himself. Holy shit! (laughs) Oh my god. This is just fucking stupid. Eh, yeah. Part 1. Teil 1. In which we meet the real Dr. Faustus and find out he was the Julia Child of Renaissance magic. Julia Child presents the Chicken Sisters and old Madam Hen. Oh boy, oh boy. Last time, we found out that way back in 1587, somebody took the Pizzagate details of Cyprian's story. Combine them with all of that fanciful Simon Says material from the Clementine Recognitions, and created an instant bestseller known as Das Faustbuch. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. It was first translated into English in 1592 as The History of the Damnable Life and Deserved Death of Dr. John Faustus. Yikes! Turns out, there was a guy who traveled all over Germany in the early 16th century, calling himself Magister Georgius Sabellicus Faustus Jr. And wherever he went, he passed himself off as a theurgist, astrologer, alchemist, seer, and even medical doctor. A most distinguished scientist. Uh, not... Plenty of sources testified to his existence and his questionable character. And so his sketchy reputation provided the perfect hook 
to hang all of that juicy Cyprian and Simon Magus material on. Whoever had that bright idea mixed all those stories together, added a dash of the story of a certain Saint Theophilus of Adana, a guy who, despite his reported deal with the devil, did not get himself demoted from Saint Theophilus to Mr. Theophilus. Ooh. And well... That's entertainment! I'm sorry, you just have inferior taste. Well, let me tell you, the Faust book is well worth reading. Not only because, to this day, it's still entertaining, it's also excellent training for your intuition. Which really means, it lets your intuition teach you about itself. How? Well, with or without your cooperation, your intuition is always going to go ahead and do its thing, and, you know, read between the lines. If you turn a blind eye to it, though, as most people in this culture do, all you're going to get is an obvious morality play of right versus wrong, even while it's dressed up as comedic fantasy. All right, well, that's, uh, that's good enough for me. Uh, it's close enough. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but if you dare to look, you're going to have one of those awkward moments of cognitive dissonance that intuition alone has the power to produce. What are you talking about? Well, that early Faust story has just enough humor in it to let your logical mind take a back seat and allow intuition to do the driving. And if you do manage to resist that urge to use your logical judgment, you're going to notice that the character everyone is supposed to think of as wrong, if not downright evil, is pretty much a personification of intuition. Pseudo-intellectual bullshit. I think it's best if you read this early version of Faust for yourself. You can borrow a very nice modern translation of it on archive.org. I'll leave a link. Whatever. Now remember, I told you last time I was going to introduce you to the real Dr. Faust? I remember. Well, I'm just about to do that. And finally... So that early Faust book may have been based on all sorts of guys we've already mentioned, but the more famous and much more refined literary versions of Faust, namely those written by Marlowe and Goethe, well, they were more solidly based on someone we haven't mentioned before. And he's someone we need to know. Why? Well, he happens to be the very guy that the character of Hansel was based on. You can't be serious. Oh, yeah, I am. He's not only Hansel's closest metaphoric ancestor. Hansel is the spitting image of him. All right, if you say so. Indeed, I do. He is the most famous German practitioner and explicator of all three hermetic arts theurgy, alchemy, and astrology, and a metaphoric ancestor of the most interesting man in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, my dear friends and supporters, I give you the humanist scholar, polymath physician from Cologne, Germany, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa von Nettesheim. A most distinguished scientist whose name we know even in the wild of Transylvania. I don't get it. Because the name is just kind of boring. Well, his name may not be familiar to many people outside of Europe. But the good news is, if Agrippa were alive today, you can be sure he'd be tackling the most important problems of modern life. Namely, all those things that contribute to our global shortage of Hansel and Gretel bread. Stay thirsty, my friends. <clears throat> now, the bad news is that Agrippa's message is a genuine can of worms straight from Hades. A Pandora's box full of information we can all use, but only your intuition will appreciate. Oh dear, that's rather alarming. 
To academics, he's something of an enigma, best known as the Janus-faced author of two important books of the late Renaissance, early Baroque period. What are they? One of those books was a definitive text on magic called De Occulta Philosophia Libri Tres. Three Books of Occult Philosophy. So what? Well, this is the book that everyone interested in magic coveted. So, what, 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 why? Because it intelligently summarized just about everything that had ever been written on the subject, or at least was known to have been published. It was particularly prized because if you had Agrippa's book on magic, you had all the occult secrets worth knowing. Ooh, I like that. It was, in fact, something of a cookbook, which kind of made him a Julia Child of Renaissance magic. We're roasting Miss Chicken! Voila. (laughs) Well, see, Agrippa was an erudite adept and scholar interested in both the theory and practice of the occult arts, which, uh, as you and I know, really means... The art of French cooking. Uh, no. It means the three hermetic arts. Of course. For example, Agrippa speaks of the correspondence of all things in nature and in the heavens, which uh, is a pretty obvious reference to alchemy and the Emerald Tablet. As above, so below. I remember. Then he takes it an important step further by explaining how that correspondence, above and below, is due to occult properties, something he calls virtues. Now, by calling them occult, he means that they're hidden from the eyes of everyone, except those who have the secret. Ooh. And just one of those secrets is the correspondence between the moon and silver as well as between the moon and certain stones, which in our story means the moon and Hansel's pebbles. Yeah, very nice. Of course, if you have the secret, you can see the correspondence for yourself. And once you do, you can produce magic. Bollocks, just bollocks. Yeah, well, all sorts of people wanted those secrets, and still do. As a matter of fact, for goodness sakes, consider the whole New Age interest in crystals. And if that doesn't convince you, check out how crazy popular Agrippa's book still is on Amazon.com. I'll leave a link. This is relevant to my interests. Uh Uh-oh. Now, it would seem that Agrippa gave away all his secrets to any Tom, Dick, or... uh, Vladimir, who would pony up and buy his book. And yet, he constantly says that only the wise will be able to understand. And that's a typical caveat found in most serious books on alchemy. So when he speaks of the wise, it doesn't mean some old bearded geezer or, you know, some uh, wise guy. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Oh! He means us intuitives. Because the secret itself, the one he really means, and there really is only one secret, that secret is intuition. That's it. Now, as I keep repeating, each of us has intuition. But our culture... It did a Holzhacker on us. Huh? Well, in acting like the Holzhacker parents, it's done its level best to kick intuition and feeling out of the house and get them both lost in the woods of our own unconscious. That's bad. That That's bad. Now, it's my experience that unless you've been introduced to your own intuition which uh, often requires a process of initiation, and I do indeed know of just such a process. All of those occult secret properties, virtues, and correspondences will forever remain hidden. Oh no! 
Because to the logical mind, it's all a bunch of hooey. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, Mary Shelley made good use of this common prejudice when she had Victor Frankenstein's father say, Go to bed. Yes, now. Go to bed. <clears throat> ah, Cornelius Agrippa. My dear Victor, do not waste your time upon this. It is sad trash. I agree. Part 2 Teil 2 In which we learn about the connection between AI, the magic 8-ball, and a couple of little black poodles. Does your dog bite? Let's dig it. You don't need to read a whole lot of Agrippa's book to realize that he isn't selling magic spells, even as he uh, spells them all out for anyone and everyone to read. <laughs> and for sure, all sorts of do-it-yourself, get-rich-quick sorcerers and wannabes eagerly scoop them up. For sure. But now that you and I have done some serious spelunking in the rabbit hole of theurgy, it's easy for us as intuitives to see that Agrippa is defending, defining, and rehabilitating intuition and the practice of theurgy for the sake of those of us who may have lost the thread, whether that was by way of cultural ignorance or simple ecclesiastic fiat. Your soul is mine forever. I own you. That's not funny. Eh, yeah. Agrippa's constant emphasis is on how we can use hermetic secrets to reach an intimate knowledge of nature and of God and achieve henosis, that theurgic union of the soul with its divine origin that is, uh, with the one, which Agrippa, being the good Catholic he was, he simply calls God. Amen. Now, uh, just for the record, for all his depth of understanding of magic and theurgic practice, as you and I understand it, he specifically addresses theurgy in his text, but only to give it a kind of blanket condemnation along with Goetia, you know, Black magic. What the hell? Well, I think that's his good Catholic boy complex coming through. That and his intelligent desire to steer clear of the Inquisition. <clears throat> reading Agrippa, it's apparent that he is a highly educated intuitive, adept at all three of the Hermetic arts. And his books were so famous that. As I said, he's considered the chief model for the character of Faust in both Marlowe's and Goethe's versions of the story. How do you know that? How do you know that? Well, according to Francis Yates, the famous scholar of Renaissance magic and occultism, Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus was essentially propaganda against theurgy and against Agrippa. And that's obvious, if only because in the end, Marlowe's Faustus, ooh, he's taken off to hell, punished for his interest in occult intuitive knowledge and the power it could bestow. Naturally. Now, uh, not having read Marlowe myself... Uh, excuse you. Yeah, well, I can't say whether or not Marlowe understood his own intuition. I can only surmise that he didn't. Is that so? Now, I did read a few analyses of the play. Oh, my. You gotta think, though, whoever wrote those analyses, scholarly or not, probably wasn't intuitive. So, uh, that's no real help. Some people say. Well, I have read Goethe's Faust. A couple of times. At least part one, that is. Apparently, Goethe was an astute reader of Agrippa. And I think much more amenable to intuition, as well as to Agrippa. 
Yeah, at least he allows Faust his redemption. Hooray! Both Marlowe and Goethe characterize Faust as a kind of Aristotelian savant. He had mastered everything that was worth learning by virtue of logic, but found that it brought him little or no satisfaction. And why not? Funny you should ask. This interest in mastering all human knowledge? It's a metaphoric theme we're going to find later on in the fairy tale. And for sure, it's fundamental to the development of AI. Indeed. It was once a serious goal of at least two 17th century giants of philosophy, Francis Bacon and Jan Comenius. It was termed pan-sophism, the goal being to organize all human knowledge in such a way as to be able to learn it all. Wow. Now, the modern enterprise of digitizing all available books and writing and even the spoken word and making it all available online, it almost exactly fits the aims of Comenius in particular, who was, in fact, an educator. It's also fundamental to the AI project. That's correct. But just as Faust was dissatisfied with knowledge of bare facts, the unspoken goal of AI is to find something beyond factual knowledge. And that's why I believe that AI should stand for artificial intuition. Because the aim is to formulate novel ideas from all of that factual information. And in order to do that, AI has to replicate the power of intuition, which uh, in reality would be genius and nothing short of alchemy. In fact, AI is attempting to create genius, exactly the way one of the characters in Faust creates the famous homunculus. The fuck is this? Well, that was like the magic eight ball. It was a little being in a bottle who could answer all questions. Oh, wow, man. Yeah, but AI can't give us truth. It can only regurgitate facts and opinions that are fed to it. Now, that makes it like a sixth grader who's trying to sound like an intelligent adult by parroting his parents' opinions and a few facts from the Discovery Channel. The only difference is that AI has a much wider and more complex variety of opinions and facts to parrot. Trying to create living and breathing truth out of cold, digitized facts and random opinions, that's impossible without intuition. And that's why I believe AI is trying to recreate intuition. And that, that makes it Faustian. Wow. Now, I don't want to get us sidetracked into the Faustian enterprise of AI or make this episode all about Faust. Thank you. I'm no expert in either, but I can see Goethe's Mephistopheles as a personification of AI. Oh. He's witty as hell, but he's also an amoral narcissist, devoid of empathy. And for all his amazing powers, the one superpower he, an AI, does not possess, and quite possibly never will, is intuition. Not good. Now we know for sure that Goethe used Agrippa as a model for Faust because he has Mephisto first appear as a black poodle. Uh? Well, that's another example of metalepsis. That snooty-sounding literary trope where an author makes an obvious reference to some famous something written previously by somebody else. In this case... Goethe was making reference to a well-known tabloid notion about Agrippa, immortalized by the very gossipy historian known as Paolo Jovio back in 1546. He died execrated by many as a wretch suspected of practicing black art because they thought he took about with him an evil genius in the shape of a black dog. Can you believe that? Certainly. Now, in checking my sources, I found out that Goethe was also making reference to another gossipy historian, writing 500 years earlier than Paolo Jovio. This time, 
about the death of Pope Sylvester II. And we'll have more to say about him in episode 31. Please don't do that. Hey, he's important to our story. I don't think so. Hey, don't be so sure. Now, if you ask me, describing Agrippa as a wretch, it's pure schadenfreude. Because his intelligence, intuition, and empathy must have been pretty hard for other intellectuals to swallow. Not surprisingly, the same sort of thing might have been true of Pope Sylvester II. Wow, that's a surprise. Considering Agrippa's zeitgeist, he died in 1535, he's what many today would call a Renaissance man. Yet, uh, even for the Renaissance, he was way ahead of his time. And vilifying... The most interesting man in the world. Well, that betrays nothing but envy. And it pretty much shows that the world wasn't ready for him. So what? Okay, referencing Faust and Agrippa at this point, it ain't no gratuitous aside. Reading Faust in any edition, it gives the impression of a guy who doesn't quite know what intuition is, but realizing that something is missing comes to want that something back from wherever it had been banished by the culture. And that something turns out to be intuition. Now, given the fact that the Catholic Church had pretty much called dibs on intuition, the Faust legend tells us that all of mankind is forced to make a pact with the devil in order to get it back. Holy shit! Now, as far as I can tell, Agrippa managed to recover his intuition without having to give up his religion. So, in writing the definitive book on magic, he was offering up that same possibility to anyone who dared to read between the lines. Nonsense! Okay, so that's just my opinion. But I think it's possible that Goethe recognized this about Agrippa and used Faust's foibles and struggles to illustrate just how difficult and dangerous it is to regain the intuition we were all born with. This is the biggest pile of crap I've ever heard. Uh, yeah. Right on, Mrs. Holtzacher. Part 3 Teil 3 In which the real Dr. Faust pulls a John Oliver and pisses off a whole bunch of Renaissance intellectuals. Be advised, multiple hostiles detected. Piss off! Yes, sir. Agrippa's other principal work was a famous and very entertaining declamation against all arts, sciences, and professions, including anything and everything considered occult. De incertitudine et vanitate scientiarum. <clears throat> the, sorry. On the uncertainty and vanity of the arts and sciences and the excellence of the word of God. An invective declamation. Are you out of your mind? Well, it's a very sarcastic attack on all existing fields of knowledge, including all three hermetic arts and on the pretensions of close-minded scholars and intellectuals who practice them. Now, he also denounces all the BS that had grown up around the simple doctrines of Christianity, and pleads for a return to the primitive beliefs of the early Christian church. In other words, he's all for that same return to the old-time religion we talked about in earlier episodes. Remember? No. Well, at the time he wrote it, it caused a big stir and pissed off a whole host of characters, educated and otherwise. I will fuck you up. Later on, it caused all sorts of philosophers and historians to lose their minds over his seeming about face on the subject of magic. Can you please explain what the fuck you are talking about? Well, we've already said Agrippa was heavily invested in the occult hermetic arts. Not just in terms of his academic interest, but his practice of them as well. And yet, 
Here he was calling BS on them and their practitioners. What? Yeah, you'd almost think he was the first in that long line of skeptic magicians. Guys like Harry Houdini, the amazing Randy, and Penn and Teller. All of them putting energy and vehemence into calling bullshit on whatever they think of as spiritualism and superstition. And there was Agrippa doing the same thing. Precisely. Except unlike those modern, sarcastic entertainers. Guys who can't hold a candle to Agrippa in class and intelligence. Nobody's sure which side of the fence he was really on. Why, 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 why? Well, he had only just published his cookbook praising the virtues of magic. So what the hell was he doing publicly contradicting himself? I have no idea at all. Well, unlike these later guys, whose only claim to fame is sleight of hand, and whose focus on superstition betrays their complete misunderstanding of intuition, Agrippa wasn't some fancy entertainer, and he sure as hell wasn't a charlatan, even if these uh, modern entertainer-skeptic guys would probably think he was. Oddly enough, with this text, he was indeed out to entertain. Whatever I am, whether it's a new me or an old me, remember, I'm still just an entertainer. Well... All you gotta do is read between the lines to see that the whole thing is tongue-in-cheek sarcasm and satire. Think Renaissance-era John Oliver. Charles, Elton John knows things about you, and not just the tampon thing. I'm not doing Tampax again. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me? Hey. You can read Agrippa for yourself. I'll leave a link. Okie dokie. Yeah, it's well worth reading, because it reveals Agrippa to be a witty polymath with an educated tolerance for paradox and a serious understanding of intuition. By attacking magic, he's not contradicting himself. He's targeting magician wannabes. Guys whose only interest lies in exploiting the technology and power of hermeticism for the sake of ego and personal gain. I like that! Well, he's also targeting critics of what we now understand as theurgy. All sorts of would-be Fausts, who not only can't read between the lines, but have no interest in getting their intuition back. Of course, it takes an intuitive to see this. To see that Agrippa's invective against magic is directed against the hubris, the uh, vanitas, of people with no clue as to what intuition really is, and who, as a result, refuse to grant it legitimacy. Oh yeah. Magic aside, he also makes fun of big-shot academics working, as we would say these days, in silos. In other words, he makes comedy hay out of the tunnel vision and isolation of the specialist. Aristotelian Faust know-it-alls, each of whom, of course, insisting on the superiority of their own opinion. Roger, right, Dad. Now, throughout the text, his greatest source of comedy material, it comes from quoting the dogmatic assertions of various scholars contradicting each other over the very same facts. Oh my God! Ridiculous. And it seems particularly obvious that, at least between the lines, Agrippa enjoyed taunting people like that. And his object was to teach and entertain those who understood him best. So, who was it that understood him best? Hmm. Anyone with a real clue about intuition. That's who. Wow. And uh, just what was he teaching them? you might ask? Well, my opinion is that he was modeling the Neoplatonic Socratic perspective concerning all knowledge. What's that? Knowing that we really know nothing. Uh Uh-huh. And that makes him a Faust who redeemed himself. A Faust who got his intuition back. Awesome. And on that point, I believe he was heavily influenced by another famous intuitive who lived and worked for some time in Cologne, and who died about 20 years before Agrippa was born. Who's this? My name is unimportant. Hey, don't be so modest. 
His name is Niklaus Kusanus, or Niklaus von Kuis. Oh, fuck. Hey, relax. All you need to know is that one of Nikki's most famous texts was called De Docta Ignorantia, of Learned Ignorance. And while that text crosses pretty heavily into theologic territory, it's easy to catch his intuitive typology at work in this and in all of his writing and thinking. Who cares? Well, speaking of intuition, which is uh, pretty much what we're always doing in this podcast, in a work that Nicky called De Conjectoris, or On Conjectures, he uses the term intellectus to mean intuition. You can't be serious. Yeah, well, I am. Because when you read what he has to say about the thing he calls intellectus, he's really talking about intuition in the way that you and I understand it. And it's obvious that whatever we take the modern English word intellect to mean, that's not at all what Nicky meant. And why not? Well, as a matter of fact, there really isn't any single word in Latin that adequately describes what the ancient Romans or anyone writing in Latin, might have considered intuition to be. We can only read Latin texts and recognize when people like Nicky are describing what you and I know as intuition. What they chose to name it, it doesn't really matter. Why the fuck not? Well, that's because intuition itself is impossible to put into words. So, no matter what you call it, it's all just... Words, words, words. Part 4 Teil 4 In which we take part in a thinking man's magical spelling bee. Can you spell Stephanopoulos? F, 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 F. How do you spell... Magic spell. As puzzled as most scholars are by Agrippa's paradoxical stance on magic, one thing they all seem certain of is that Agrippa was dead set against scholastic theology. The fuck is this? Well, that's the business of scholarly theologians, guys like Aquinas and Don Scotus, trying to prove religious doctrine by way of hair-splitting Aristotelian logic. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, Agrippa called them egregious wranglers and litigious sophisters. In Latin, of course. Saying that they were guys who believed that they can find out and demonstrate those things which are only to be believed by faith. Now, he felt that by grafting logic onto matters of faith, these guys had created an improbable monster, and he called the results of their efforts a centaur. You know, half man, half horse. Oh, I think very much, Captain Obvious. Well, here's the thing, though. By saying this, he betrays the bias we all have in favor of our own typology and temperament against that of our opposite number. In other words, Agrippa having more of a platonic, intuitive temperament, like you and me, when he found himself unable to fully appreciate the arguments of guys having a more Aristotelian, logical temperament. Guys like Aquinas and Duns Guys whose hair-splitting logic and complicated, wordy disquisitions are just as difficult for us intuitives to read and understand as Agrippa's intuitive texts would have been for logical types like them. Have you got no brain? Well, yeah, I do. Except, just like Agrippa's, mine's not wired into the same typology as the scholastics. Thinking not your strong point, dear? Well, if you consider that as far as typology goes, the thinking function, which uh, is pretty much synonymous with logic, is, in fact, my inferior function. So, uh, yeah. You'd be right about that. And because our culture is biased in favor of logic and the thinking function, that explains why Agrippa, as an intuitive, 
was considered mentally unstable. Are you sure? Oh, yeah. According to Professor Mark Vanderpol, Agrippa's involvement with magic was labeled as the delusion of a psychologically unstable mind, a ready victim of the superstition that was assumed to have generally reigned during the 16th century. Hocus pocus abracadabra. But there's that word again. Hocus pocus. Uh, no. I meant superstition. The magic word logic uses to dismiss intuition. The fact that so many people are superstitious well, doesn't negate intuition. It just means that superstitious people don't understand their own intuition and are vulnerable to, and more likely to believe, those who claim its power. And in that regard, lots of people have gotten hold of magical cookbooks, including Agrippa's, and used them to profit off superstitious people. True that. Consider this email that popped into my mailbox just a few days ago. Are you a businessman or woman, politician or worker? Are you into entertainment without being famous? Do you want to be popular and famous in life? Contact the Spellcaster, a very powerful and spiritual man who can solve all kinds of problems. My spell is 100% reliable for positive results of any life problems. We cure all sickness. My services include love spells, lost love spells, divorce spells, marriage spells, good luck spells, promotion spells, money spell, good job spell, get your money back from scammers spells. We also have cure for any illness. Any questions, please? Part 5 Teil 5 In which we all have a renaissance Me Too moment. No, I'll kick your ass. You can't do that! Yes, I can. Because I'm a girl. <laughs> Ow! The schadenfreude unleashed at Agrippa's death should come as no surprise. We know that his two most famous works brought him plenty of fame, but almost zero respect. And well, you can't expect to make fun of people in print without causing a backlash. But there's something else, something specific in his impressive CV that helps explain his vilification and that condescending charge of mental instability we just heard about. What? Agrippa was famous for a third text one that marks him as the most progressive of all humanist scholars, not only of his time, but of ours as well. Except it was so far ahead of its time, there's no wonder he was considered loony. And that's because, in it, he proclaimed the fact that women are equal to, if not superior, to men in all things that really count. Most assuredly. Now, it's called... Declamatio de nobilitate et preeccellentia femine sexus. What did you say that was called? Declamation of the nobility and preeminence of the female sex. Wait a second. Oh, I see. Okay. Now in the text, he wonders why it is that women are excluded from all sorts of public activities and professions. Prohibited, even from taking on responsibilities and powers they are eminently suited to. Things like teaching and writing, for instance. Well, that's no surprise at all. <clears throat> now he goes on to explain that these gender-based prohibitions, they have no defensible basis in fact, but only came about through the prejudice of men in power and were perpetuated through centuries of cultural conditioning. No. Really? I am so surprised about that. I cannot imagine that. Now, Agrippa understood that insisting women are inferior to men, it's an arbitrary and unreasonable cultural bias, despite various claims of gospel as authority in the matter. Now, for instance, 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, Your husband is always right. <clears throat> I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. 
For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Ouch. Agrippa deftly refutes all such arguments. And yet, obviously, he didn't make much of a dent in the status quo. I mean, these days, the whole business of overturning such a ridiculous gender-based prejudice, it's sneeringly considered woke. Yes, you are right. Back then, Agrippa's efforts only added to his reputation as mentally unstable. Yes, sir. But there's uh, something else in this. What's that? Well, despite being an intuitive, his lengthy argument leans heavily on logic and makes no mention of intuition, per se. And that had me thinking. Who, even in this day and age, doesn't believe that intuition is strictly a woman thing? You know, a feminine trait? (laughs) I don't don't know. (laughs) What's such a strong common belief, it might as well be a fact of nature. Unquestionably. Yeah. Zebras have stripes and women have intuition, and you can't change either of them. Exactly. Except it wasn't nature that taught us this. It was the culture. The culture taught us to identify women with intuition and intuition with women. What? It's not a fact. It's only a belief. One that the culture continues to reinforce without any pushback. Not even from hardcore, pomo-radical feminists. What? But there's the rub. By insisting that women and intuition are synonymous, it just perpetuates and supports the cultural prejudice that women are inferior to men. This is really confusing for me. Well, let me explain. Because our culture has long considered intuition to be irrational, a weakness, and of course, inferior to logic, it brings up a chicken or the egg question. Are women considered inferior because of their association with intuition? Or is intuition considered inferior because of its association with women? I'm thinking this is a double duality. Now, Agrippa's stance as both male intuitive and feminist, that reinforces my own conviction that Intuition is not determined by gender. I'm sorry, what? Hey, I'm a guy, and I've got intuition. I'm telling you, intuition is a typology thing. It's not a gender thing. You are hormonally confused. Western culture has actively sought to denigrate intuition by calling it irrational, writing it off as flaky, and otherwise trying to get rid of it as this fairy tale implies, and it undeniably holds women in that same mental headspace. I thought ladies liked flowers. So could it be that the gender-associated assumption of Western culture concerning intuition is the unspoken, unconscious reason why women are assumed to be inferior? What the fuck? And when a culture based on the supremacy of logic misunderstands intuition as mere superstition, an illogical fallacy, it can't help but see women, whom it equates with intuition, in the same light. In other words, as inferior. Clever. Now this, of course, is heavily based on a near-universal ignorance of intuition. (laughs) Right. Well, as long as intuition is so grossly misunderstood, And as long as women and intuition, and by extension all the intuitive arts, are lumped together, no matter what strides women make in the context of this culture, this pernicious and dismissive attitude towards women is bound to persist. Son of a bitch! Now one solution is to get rid of the cultural notion that there's some magical exclusive connection between intuition and women. Are you crazy? Yeah, well, as I keep saying, intuition is not gender-based. Each of us has intuition. Except, 
overturning the idea that intuition is limited to women might sound logical, but it's much more likely to be counterproductive. Indubitably. A better solution is to take the cultural stigma of irrationality and inferiority out of intuition. That's it. And that, my friends, is something the author of Hansel and Gretel was trying to do. Really? It's also what you and I are doing by making and by listening to this podcast. Nice. Nice. And by extension, it's also what you're doing by making a contribution to the podcast on my Buy Me a Coffee page. I'll leave a link. That was the first hour of free psychiatry. Please donate a gazillion dollars to continue your treatment. <clears throat> Alrighty then. Stop right there. This isn't over yet. All right. It's time to spill the beans on the true identity of Hermes Trismegistus. And finally... Yeah, except I've decided to hold off on that and make it the subject of episode 31. How could you? You're so mean. Yeah, well, sorry about that. You'll regret that. Well, in the context of Hansel's Moonrocks, I've got an awful lot more to say about Hermes Trismegistus. So, rather than adding it here, I'm just going to give him his own episode. It's for the better. Well, in the meantime, please do visit the website where you'll find transcripts, links, and all my peanut gallery credits. You do remember the website address, right? No. Yeah, well, I didn't think so. But I'll bet you remember the drill. Visit us on the web at www.betweenthelines.xyz. So, until next time, as Agrippa would say, Stay thirsty, my friends. Oh. There's one thing I almost forgot. Do you have another minute? No. Alrighty then. Ciao a tutti. <laughs>